Hey there, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. My name is John Whitaker, and I'm the host of the Bible in Life. And I am grateful for you. I hope you are doing well wherever you're listening to this at and in whatever circumstances you find yourself. I pray that you find yourself there with God and his goodness and his grace and that that in and of itself is a deep encouragement to you. To begin, just one little news update, if you will. I will be in Indianapolis next week. That is the week of April 24th through the 28th at the Renew.org National Gathering and the Discipleship.org National Gathering. And if you happen to be there, I would love to meet you. And so if you see me at the conference, feel free to come over and say hi, introduce yourself, let me know that uh, you listen to the podcast, either this one or the listener's commentary. I would love to uh, connect with you. And so I look forward to that. And I'm excited for that trip. It should be a good opportunity just to be with a lot of wonderful people and spend a lot of time worshiping and praying and discussing things related to um, discipleship and disciple making and the importance of the scriptures in regard to that. All right, we're going to launch a new series next week on the Bible and life. And what I want to do this week is take up a question that uh, I have been asked a lot over the years. I have received a handful of emails just in the last couple of weeks asking uh, this question and various parts of this question. And so I thought, man, let me just do a podcast where I, I help answer this question for people who maybe have, have the question, thought the question, but didn't even email me or anything like that. And so the question is, what's the best Bible translation? And that question has come to me in a variety of ways. Some just wondering which translation I use or what translation should I recommend to this friend of mine who's a new believer or uh, even questions about, hey, I've heard that the King James Version is really the only uh, legitimate uh, English version. That's why it's called the Authorized Version. Should I just be using the King James Version? And so there's a lot of questions about Bible translations in general. And this is important. And it can be overwhelming. In fact, I remember when my stepdad, who at the time was not a believer, um, wanted to get my mom a new Bible for Christmas. They had moved to Boise, and so they were living here in town. And he went to the Christian bookstore, which at that time was uh, literally a half mile from my house. And, and so this one particular Saturday morning, he went to the Christian bookstore and uh, walked in, was going to buy a Bible and go home. But it proved to be more complicated than he thought. And so I got a phone call on this Saturday morning from Gary, my stepdad. Uh, John, you know how I was going to buy your mom a Bible for Christmas? Well, I'm not sure which kind of Bible to get. I'm here at the Christian bookstore and there's a lot of them. So since it was a half mile away from my house, I said, no problem. I'll drive over there and I'll help you out real quick. And so I hopped in the car, ran over to the bookstore. And sure enough, there was my stepdad. Remember, not a believer at this time, staring at this entire massive wall of Bibles, just standing still, staring at it when I walked in. And I walked up behind him, tapped him on the shoulder. He turned around and I said, man, I thought I could just walk in here, pick up a Bible and go home. And I didn't know there would be so many options. 
And sometimes that's the way it feels. There's so many options. You got all the different translations. And then within each translation, you have this particular type and that particular type. And it can be overwhelming. And certainly Gary was overwhelmed by that. So let's just talk about Bible translations. What's the various translation philosophies? Why all the different kinds of translations? And as part of that, let's talk about also the King James. And is it really the best version? And you will meet people like that who think that the King James is um, the, like you should, you should only read the English King James Bible. You shouldn't read the NIV or any of the other newer translations. Those newer translations are corrupt and they're wicked. I mean, you'll find people who are serious about their King James only approach to reading the Bible. So let's start there, and then we'll talk about translation philosophy in general. So with regard to the King James, um, here is the thing, is, is that we need to understand that the Bible was not originally written in English. I'm sure you know that. That's obvious, right? That the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and a few parts of it in Aramaic. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, specifically the common Greek of uh first century world, right? Koine Greek is the technical name for it. And so anything other than reading it in the Hebrew or reading it in the Greek is reading a translation. And there are lots of them. Not only English translations, there's other languages as well. We even have ancient Latin translations and ancient Coptic translations and ancient Syriac translations. Obviously, you have the languages of today, German translations and French translations, as well as English translations. Lots of translations because there's lots of languages in the world. And that means there's nothing special about any particular one language translation. And that means there's nothing special about the King James Version. It's just another translation. In fact, it's not even the first English translation. There were English translations that preceded the King James translation. The King James Version was produced in 1611 at the request of King James I of England. Those involved in the translation opted to use what is now known as the received text. In Latin, it was called the textus receptus, the received text. This was the best Greek text available in 1611. And it was remarkably well-preserved, even though there were very few Greek manuscripts for which they had to work off of. Um, the, the church had been operating in the Latin language for centuries by that point in time. And so Latin was the official language, and there were lots of Latin translations of the Bible, but there wasn't a whole lot of Greek manuscripts to work off of. And so with the Textus Receptus, as they were putting together a Greek text to work off of for the English translation, with the, the received text, there was never any more than eight Greek manuscripts to compare for any particular given passage in the New Testament. And in some places, they had no Greek uh, manuscript or part of a manuscript to work off of, but the manuscripts they had just didn't. Uh, that were broken off or whatever. And so they didn't have any Greek. So you know what they did? They actually took the Latin, translated it into Greek so that they could have a Greek text to translate from for the King James. Now, what's fascinating is even though they had so few manuscripts, 
they, those manuscripts have been so well preserved and the copies were so careful that it was remarkably accurate. But compare that to what we have today. We now have well over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of part or all of the New Testament. 5,000. They never had more than eight for any other, which means we have a more stable and more solid and more reliable Greek text to work off of for modern translations. We, when you look at, say, for example, uh, a Greek New Testament, you're looking at the compilation of scholars' work comparing all these different Greek manuscripts, and there are some variations, because when you're copying things by hand, things get changed. And so there's some variations in the manuscripts. And they compare all those, and they, based on principles of textual criticism, they're like, this is most likely the original reading, not this one. Some of that is obvious. Most of that is very obvious, where there's some variation in the manuscript. And those variations affect hardly any percentage of the total Greek New Testament. So we have a very solid and reliable Greek text today. Uh, for the most part, about 99 plus percent certain we know exactly what was originally written by the original authors of the New Testament. And so what's amazing is that even though with the received text, they only had eight, how similar it is to the Greek text we have today, which speaks to how carefully the ancient church preserved the text of the New Testament. It was so sacred and so important that they worked really hard to preserve it. So, what does that mean for the King James? Well, it means this. The King James is a solid translation, but it's a solid translation of a Greek text that had a few questions in it, a few gaps in it. It also uh, had a few places where it's like they, they included some things where now we know it's like that probably wasn't part of the original. It was like a marginal note that got added in later or something like that. And, and yet, it's a solid translation. But it's a solid translation of 1611 King's English. We don't speak 1611 King's English anymore, and that creates confusions sometimes. In fact, some of the, the words mean things totally different. Here's a really simple example. Say you're reading through 1 Peter in the King James, and you come across, let your conversation be excellent among the Gentiles. What do you assume you're supposed to do? How do you apply that to your life? Well, in uh, our language today, conversation refers to your speech. So the application we would default to is you got to make sure the way you talk among unbelievers is uh, really excellent and clear and God-honoring. But that's not at all what the word conversation meant in 1611. The word conversation in 1611 referred to your entire manner of life. And the Greek word behind that specific sentence is anastrophe. And anastrophe refers to your entire manner of life. And so 1611 King's English is just not what we speak today. And that's why sometimes the King James is hard to understand. So the King James is a solid translation, but you're going to have to do some translation of the translation in order to understand it because it's got to be translated into modern English. Because words just don't mean today what they meant back in 1611. Languages change, right? That's just the way languages work. And so it's a solid translation. 
it's just not uh, the best translation for today. And here's the really, really important point. It's a translation. It's a translation. Definitely, um, it's not the only reliable translation. That's just completely false, misunderstands how the Bible came to us, the original languages it was written in. And here's the thing. God did not inspire the translations. God inspired the original writers who wrote in Hebrew for the Old Testament and the original writers who wrote in Greek for the New Testament. That's who God inspired. It's the original text uh, inspired by God through the original author. So the King James is not an inspired version or inspired translation of the, of the Bible. So the point is, New translations are based on a more complete Greek text in a more accurate English rendering for today that's therefore more understandable. So if you like the, you know, 1611 Kings English, read it. Just know you're going to have to do some translation work into modern English to make sure you don't misunderstand some of the things that are being said. Now, having said that, there are plenty of other newer translations that are reliable and trustworthy. And so let's talk about translations in general. There are two main categories um, of, of translation theory or translation philosophy, or you could think of it almost as a continuum, a line uh, that has um, these two different categories that points on the line. Those two categories are this. Uh, one category is more word for word. And so uh, on the more literal side of this continuum, this line is more word for word translations. The technical name for this in translation theory is formal equivalence. And the goal of a word-for-word -word or formal equivalent translation is to try to rep reproduce the wording and the grammar and the structure of the original language while producing a solid, in our case, English translation. Or maybe where you live, you, you read a French translation or you read, right, wherever you're at, it's to, to produce a translation that matches the wording, the grammar, and the structure of the original Greek language or the original Hebrew language. The strength of this is it's a little less interpretive. So a little less interpretation shows up in the translation. And so when studying the text, here's really a derivative strength of that, when studying the text off your translation, you're dealing more with the original sentence structure and the original grammar. That's helpful. The weakness of it is that it's not going to be nearly as readable in whatever the, the target language is. In English, if you're reading one of the English translations or whatever other language the translation is into, it's just not going to be as readable. It's going to be a little more wooden and stiff. And so as the reader, you're going to have to work harder to make sure you understand what's uh, being said. So translations that fit that category, this word-for-word -word category, are translations like the English Standard Version. That's pretty popular. The New American Standard Version. That's the one I use on the listener's commentary. Um, the New King James Version. Some people like the New King James Version. In fact, the preacher at the church I attend, he prefers that one. He likes that. Or the Revised Standard Version. These tend to be 
formally equivalent translations, a little bit more word for word. And obviously there's a continuum even there amongst those, right? Some are a little more wooden and stiff than others, and some are a little more freed up and readable than others, but they all fit in that category. So that's one category. The other main category is what is usually described as a little bit more thought for thought. The phrase for that in translation theory is dynamic equivalence. So formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Word for word, formal equivalence. Thought for thought, dynamic equivalence. And the goal in this sort of translation is to pass on the meaning and the thought of the original while pro producing uh, a more easily readable translation in whatever language you're translating into, a more easily readable English translation in our case. Um, and so the strength is it's more readable. It's generally easier to understand. The weakness is that the translators have made more interpretive decisions for you reflecting how they understand the text, which is not necessarily a bad thing. That's just how translation work is done all the time in cross-cultural communication. Like when I'm teaching in a, a, through a translator, as I did in Haiti, for example, and it's being translated into Creole, he doesn't always say word for word. Like I'll say a sentence and sometimes he goes on for what feels like a whole paragraph. He's capturing the essence of the thing. And so translation work is often done this way. So it's, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean that they make more decisions uh, that may um, not be the best decisions. And because they made more decisions, they've they've made it clear to you that this is what this means and that's their judgment call and it may not turn out to be best and so we just have to be aware of that translations that fit in this category the NIV is a dynamic equivalent translations it's more on the upper end of it but that's where it fits for the new living translation is an english translation that's uh, in this category, and it's uh, kind of down the line, a little bit more freed up and a little bit more interpretive than, say, the NIV. And so you have those kinds of translations. Now, there's a range, as I've pointed out to all of this, right? Like the NIV is more word for word than the New Living Translation, but it's less word for word than the English Standard Version or the New American Standard. So there's this, this continuum, this range to all of this. So what does all this mean for choosing the best translation? What's the best translation? Well, it depends on what you want. In fact, I usually tell people to use one from each category if you're studying a passage of scripture so that you can compare them. Use something that's from the more word for word, the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version or the Revised Standard Version and use something more like the NIV so you can compare them. And when you compare them, then you can notice differences between them and those differences are like, huh, I wonder why there's a difference. And th then you can mark that, you can look that up and you can say, that's something I need to research and figure out why there's a difference. And so when studying, I think comparing uh, translations is very valuable and very helpful. If you're recommending a Bible for a a new believer, I would give them something more readable and less wooden and hard to understand. Maybe like the NIV or something like that. So there's no one best translation. 
Some are more reliable than others. Some are more paraphrases, like all the way down at the far end of uh, the range of things is what's called a paraphrase, where this isn't even truly a translation. It's more taking an English version and just freeing it up or paraphrasing it. Or you'll get a something like The Message, which is really Eugene Peterson's own work, originally done as he was just trying to translate uh, the passages that he was preaching from for the sake of his audience. And then it led to actually being published as a translation. And it's very freed up. It's very loose. It's not a strict translation. That's way down at the far end of translation theory. And those kinds of ones might be helpful just to glance at if you're studying a passage or how does this particular interpreter understand this phrase. All right, all well and good. But it's better to use one of the main translations and if you're studying a text to compare translations in order to see differences between them and notice things that might be but provoke some curiosity for things for you to study. So I hope that helps at least understand the, the approaches to translation and why there's such variety within them. I hope it helps you um, know where our translations come from and all of that. I hope it also helps you realize that we're working off of uh for the New Testament, a Greek text, for the Old Testament, a Hebrew text that has been carefully, carefully by like brilliant scholars just looking at all these manuscripts saying, oh, this is probably what most likely what the original manuscript said in these places where there's some variation. And those variations affect a small percentage of the text. For the New Testament, less than 1% of the text is, is even in question. For the Old Testament, less than 4% of the text is even in question. And so we have great confidence that we have the original text, even if we don't have the original manuscripts. And that original text then gets translated into all these various languages around the world so we can read God's word in our own native language. All right, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible in Life podcast. The Bible in Life is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by swinging over to johnwhitaker.net, johnwhitaker.net, click the Give button, take you to a page where uh, you can then click a Donate button that'll where you can set up, put in a dollar amount, click a little box that says make this monthly. You could set up a monthly recurring, recurring donation right there, or you can give a one-time donation as well. And all those donations are received um, in partnership with an organization called World Family Mission, a registered nonprofit. So thanks a ton for your support.